Okay, let's pray then. Father, we just want to posture ourselves before you and say your word is holy and your word is given so that we would see you and know you and change to be like you. And so today, by your spirit, we just say, come and tend to our hearts, come and renew our minds and feed our spirits as we dwell with you. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. Good. Okay, so we are carrying on uh, in the summer series on parables, and uh, Quincy asked me quite a while ago to preach in this series and said, you can preach whatever one you want, Rich. So I thought, what parable haven't I preached before or, or done much research on or taught on much before? And I chose the parable of the wineskins, okay? Now, this passage can be found in three of the Gospels. You can find it in Mark chapter 2, Matthew chapter 9, and you can find it also in Luke chapter 5, which is where we're going to be today, and it will appear behind me because Jen's done a great job on the words. Thank you so much. So I'm going to read that to us today. We're going from Luke chapter 5, verses 29 through 39, and this is what it says. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Ooh. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment if he does. He will tear the new and the piece of the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins and if he does... The new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is probably the best explanation of this parable. The others um, take a bit of a shorter route through it. And so I wanted to pick one where we could actually follow the story fairly easily for us today. But what is Jesus really saying? What, what's wineskins, what's going on? And unfortunately, we did, I did have an image, a picture for us, so we could actually see what a wineskin looks like, um, but the image, for some reason, won't work on the computer today, so you're just going to have to look it up. What is a wineskin? Okay, that's your homework, church. I think it's really helpful if we get a little bit of context about what's going on, where we are in the story, what's going on, because a few verses earlier, if you were to read this chapter in your Bibles, you would see that there's a guy called Matthew, and he's also called Levi. Is that not confusing? And I'm going to use his name interchangeably throughout this, just to keep you on your toes, because your brain's going to say, is he talking about someone different? What did I miss when you switch off? No, it's not going to happen. But Matthew is Levi, Levi is Matthew, okay? He's a disciple now. And Jesus essentially has gone to him a few verses earlier. We read this. Jesus goes to him in his tax offices and shares with him the gospel of what it is to follow Jesus, to be born again, and to be a disciple. I'm paraphrasing here, but this is what goes on. Because in your Bible, it will give it in one verse. 
And what happens in that moment is Matthew is so captivated by what Jesus says to him and teaches him and reveals to him that Matthew is totally and utterly changed. He goes from being this blind, lost, sinning tax collector to being born again. And it says that he leaves everything and follows Jesus to preach the truth and to be a disciple and follower of Jesus. That's quite a turnaround. And in your Bibles and my Bible, that's about a verse. (laughs) It's crazy. What did Jesus say to him? What did Matthew see when he was face to face with the Messiah? Just think about that. It's totally changed this guy's life. Jesus has totally and utterly captivated him in every way. This is huge. In his, in his place in the community, in his upbringing in the pharisaical society around him, this is huge. It's no small undertaking. And so before we get going this morning, I thought I'd ask us a question. How captivated are you with Jesus if you're a Christian in this place today? Because I'm going to appreciate that maybe not all of us are, and I'll get to that. But how captivated, if you're a Christian, how captivated, how in awe are you of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who saved you, the one who called you, the one who said your sins are forgiven, go free? Because I think the longer you're a Christian, if you're not careful, you can really start to take that for granted. Fair? Yeah, I'm saved. Christianese now, I'm going to speak Christianese. I'm saved. I'm born again. I belong to Jesus. I can sing the songs. I can even do it with my eyes closed because I know them. I've repeated them enough. But is there awe? Is there wonder? Am I stopped? Am I totally transfixed when I think about what Jesus has done in my place on my behalf? And I'm asking that question as much of me as I am of any of the rest of you because I'm believing that that's what happened in this moment with Matthew. Something so radical has happened to him that he is changed forever. He's never going to be the same. So here we have Matthew, this fully-fledged, born-again believer who's now a disciple, which means a follower of Jesus, a follower in the way of Jesus. And because he's had this incredible experience, he's got all these non-Christian friends and he goes, do you know what, everything that I've seen, everything that I've experienced, everything I now know about being in right relationship with Jesus is so important that I need my friends to know about this. And so what he does is he essentially gathers all his friends together and says, let's have a party. And that's where our story is taking place today. They've all gone around to Matthew's house and they're having a party, a feast, we're told, actually. The wine's there, the food's there. He's put on a spread for everyone to come and see and meet this Jesus who has changed his life forever. And maybe you've done that. Quincy just encouraged us, and I'm going to pick up on it. We've got an opportunity at Christmas to go come and see. Come and meet. Come and know this wonderful Jesus. Jesus brings his unbelieving tax collector friends, and the tax office gets a bit of a raw deal, doesn't it? None of us really, if you're honest, really like tax. No, no, like the tax system. No, be careful, Rich. They get a bad rep. And you'll see as we go through our story that the Pharisees feel the same way. Paying taxes is hard. (laughs) 
And the best thing that, G, uh, that Matthew can think of is, I need to get my friends with Jesus. If anything's going to change, if they're going to see and hear and know what's happened to me, they're going to need to see him. Because whatever he did, it's changed me and he can change them. Without him, they are completely lacking. So he's having this party at his house, but there's one massive problem. He's chosen to do it on a day that the Pharisees, the religious folk, if you don't know what a Pharisee is, it was essentially a devout religious follower of Judaism. They would have fast days, twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and they would fast from six in the morning till six in the evening to show their great depth of love and commitment to what they believed in their faith in God. It was a way of sacrificing so that they could be close to God. That's essentially the premise of what they're trying to do. Noble in its endeavor, but inevitably flawed. And Matthew, this totally green, new believer's gone, let's have a party. And he's had a party at his house on one of the days that these guys are fasting. And the Pharisees show up and they're hungry or they're hangry. If you're like me, when you haven't eaten for a while. And they turn up to Matthew's house, hungry and full of judgment. And that's where we are in our story today. And now think about this for a moment, because this was great. As I was reading through the story, I thought, right, what was Jesus really doing? Because Jesus has been invited to this party at Matthew's house on one of these fast days. Did he not know that it was a fast day? Well, of course he did. And he's just turned up amongst everybody and gone, do you know what? Let's just scatter some truth in and amongst all your religiosity. Because at that moment in time, actually under the old Mosaic law, the Jews only had to fast on the Day of Atonement. Okay, you can find that in Leviticus if you're interested, chapter 16. If you want to look back and go, right, where did they get these cultural moments from? But what happened is that these religious devout Pharisees didn't go, oh, we'll just fast on this one day. No, we need to show more diligence. We need to prove ourselves more. We need to add something to the law of God. And so they've added in these two fast days every single week because that'll set us apart. That'll prove a point about our piety, about our importance, about our dedication to Jesus. And so Jesus has come in and amongst all of this with these tax collectors and with these sinners and he's sitting there scoffing his face. Brilliant. Yeah, you got a nice visual in your head now? Have I painted a picture for you? Jesus showing up doing the unconventional amongst them. And we've got these men gathered around Jesus. They're watching him eat while they're fasting themselves, and you can sense this judgment rising up. There's a moment about to happen. There's a line of questioning that's going to take place any moment now. And one of the things that I think is really important is that we realize that these Pharisees ask a question of Jesus, but I think that it's quite easy to read in between the lines and say, within their question, there are definitely other questions. Okay, if you've read anything of the Gospels, you can be pretty confident that the heart of the Pharisees was such. Okay, so I'm going to pose to us three questions that I think they're asking in between their line of questioning. One of the things that we see as we look at this text is that Jesus is coming in and amongst these religious elite. He's sitting there amongst tax collectors and or sinners... And Jesus is saying, 
Essentially, this mealtime, this moment, is all about change. That's what this parable is all about. It's all about change. And Jesus is saying there's a new way. That's what's taking place underneath all of these things. And so Jesus is sitting there with his disciples, and the disciples of John, and the Pharisees, and the tax collectors, and he's actually saying, I'm going to feast on a day when you're fasting. I'm going to come against your religiosity, and I'm going to show you a new way. And so what he's teaching his disciples is, you can feast with sinners, whereas the Pharisees are saying, why are you not fasting with us, the saints? Are you seeing that in the text? Because the Pharisees see themselves as set apart and above and over. But Jesus is saying, come feast with me. He's totally and utterly turning the tables over in this party, if we were to sort of say that figuratively. And the question that the Pharisees come at Jesus with, and we read it a minute ago when it was in our text, says, why are you feasting when you're supposed to be fasting? That's essentially their question. And so within that question we can now look and say there are some things here that are implied or embedded within that line of questioning. And here's the first one I think we can confidently say they're actually really trying to find the answer to. Why are you feasting with sinners? Because if you're the Messiah, you're supposed to be set apart as we're set apart. Why are you feasting with sinners? Surely by feasting with them, you're just approving of their lifestyles. Who has ever heard the phrase, be in the world but not of the world? Yeah? It's quite well used, isn't it, amongst Christian circles, and it is very helpful. Be in the world but not of it, because what happens is otherwise you become like the Amish or something like that, where you pull yourself out from all the rest of the world and say, we're going to live other, but we're not going to affect change in a lost and fallen world. And if that was the case, I never would have got saved. Would you have got saved? If all the Christians in the world had pulled themselves away, would you have ever got saved? It's highly unlikely. Over 80% of the people in this room will have got saved as a result of either a parent or a friend telling them about Jesus. Am I right? Yeah? So Jesus comes to be amongst these sinners and tax collectors, and these guys are judging him for it. Surely you're encouraging them, Jesus, to continue on in their sinful lives. The second thing I think we can see implied within their line of questioning is, Jesus, why are you not fasting with us, the saints? Is it not true that all real men of God fast at least twice a week, or you will be powerless and ineffective? This is a religious mindset. These are questions that are implied here. Because there is a tradition of devotion to God that is how you prove yourself to be right with him. If you're a man of God, you fast. Mondays and Thursdays. Surely by feasting with these sinners, you're just offering them cheap salvation. It's too easy to get right with God. If this is what you're talking about, Jesus. And remember that the Pharisees, up until this point in our story, are working from a law and works-based mentality, all right? So it's not surprising that we see this in their heart. And Jesus has come in and amongst this and said, it's changing, guys. And they're uncomfortable with it. The third question that I think can be implied here is, why are you hanging out with tax collectors? What is going on here? Surely they're the worst. There's a judgment that's come upon these people. Surely only certain types of people get accepted into the kingdom of God. It can't be tax collectors. 
If it's tax collectors, well, anyone can get in. That's really what they're getting at. Are you trying to tell me, Jesus, that anybody can enter the kingdom of God? Jesus is sitting there, eating his food, listening to all that's going on around him, going, yeah, things are changing. And that's the primary underlying point of our passage today. It's about change. They're having a whole change in their culture, in their worldview, in the way of salvation. And I'm going to try and help us to bring that through to how does that affect us today? What are the changes that we're faced with today that we need to not be resistant to? And I'm going to look at it from a church point of view, because churches go through change, don't they? And I'm going to draw it in as we come to a close on ourselves, because we hopefully are changing as well. And I'm going to use some examples of some things that I often see when it comes to change. So if we look at the church context, okay, you could even apply this to business if you wanted to. But there are, there are three categories of people, if I was to be a bit broad spectrum. I would put the first category as pioneers, okay? Extreme pioneers, some people. Pioneers are brilliant, by the way, because they are fire starters. They're people who are saying, come on, let's go, let's go. Come on, have faith. Let's get going. Come on. These people love change. They live for change. They live in this place of joy and zeal because the new thing has come along. Hallelujah. This is great. They have a huge amount of startup energy. Is anyone in this room a pioneer? I think I know one. I'm just going to put his hand up. Yeah, this startup energy, this get stuff going, this new thing, this new innovation brings them huge amounts of life and they get full of these things. Who remembers many years ago, probably, I don't know, 15 years ago, someone called Jason Vale and the juicing diet. Does anyone remember that? Wow. Missed you. Okay, a friend of mine became an evangelist for Jason Vale. He didn't realize it, but every single conversation he had with me or I overheard him having with other people in the church was about Jason Vale and this juicing diet and how it was the best thing since sliced bread. And I went up to him and I said, hey, I love this new zeal. I love this new pioneering spirit you have. Do you want to tell people about Jesus as much as you do about Jason Vale? Because he cannot save you. He was my friend. I could say that to him. He stopped talking about Jason Vale and he piled the weight back on. Read into that what you will. But it's true, you can have this startup energy and this enthusiasm, and it occupies your heart, your mind, and emotions, this pioneering spirit. But if unrestrained, these people never settle. They never mature because they never put roots down deep enough. Everything's always shallow, yeah? Are you following? And this can be incredibly destabilizing. If you don't go down and you only ever spread very shallow roots, Nothing ever really gets established or goes anywhere. And, and Paul warns us in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, don't be blown around by every wind of doctrine. Don't go here and there for the next thing. Don't get pulled around by the next shiny thing that promises all these things you hope for. Pioneers are great, but must be grounded in God's word and led by the Holy Spirit. And I once, I'll tell you a little story. I once, or I, I know uh, because I have some friends who were elders in a church, and this church grew very, very well in the late 90s and noughties. And over a 10-year period, this church went to 250 adults and a bunch of kids in the church. It was doing wonderfully well. And I had friends in this church who were elders there, and they said it was fantastic. We were riding the Spirit of God. There was incredible things happening amongst us. I said, so what happened? And they said, well, the trouble was is that the guy who was leading our church was a huge pioneer. So he was great at getting things going, 
but never got things established. And they said that what would happen is that every few months he would go away for a conference or a, a, you know, some more teaching on this or that and the other and he would come back and go, this is the next big thing. This is what we've got to do. If we want to grow again, this is the thing we've got to do. We're having life groups. We're having cell groups. We're having street work. We're having door knocking. You know, whatever it was, it was the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. All these things promise us growth. And what would happen is that people within the church who just started a new ministry would be told, we're not doing that anymore. And some of those people would suddenly feel devalued. Hang on, I only just started gathering my group together and, and only just started doing some teaching on how we're going to make this work in the church and how it's going to serve us really well. And now you're saying it's stripped away. And that caused some up unrest and some upset. And when you multiply this over and over and over again, year on year, what happens is, is that you end up with very shallow roots, a bunch of frazzled people, a bunch of frustrated people who go... Is anything ever going to actually get established here? And the really sad story about what happened in this church is that by 2013, the church had dwindled to four people and it closed its doors. And it put it down. My friends who were elders in this church got hurt there. And they turned around and they said, do you know what, Rich? We needed some people to bring some depth and some structure. The pioneering was great, but it needed to be restrained in a right way. Don't hear what I didn't say there. I'm not saying everything needs to be reined in and controlled. Must be tempered. That's a better word, isn't it? So you've got the pioneers, okay? Then you've got the, these people. If you want to put them in a broad category, you could call them the changeaholics, okay? I quite like that phrase. It's, it does something in my mind. They love to change everything all the time. Then you've got the next group of people, the changeaverse people. Ooh. I won't ask for a show of hands. A change of verse, people. Now, I want to be really careful. I might, I might use humor from here, but I mean no offense to anybody, okay? Please, seriously, please know that. My heart is always to love you and to preach the word faithfully. But change of verse, people, if they pick up a flicker of an idea that things might be about to change, they sense a disturbance in the force, if you will, these group of people can find change very overwhelming, scary, and it can produce some serious anxiety. And maybe that's you, and I'm really not in any way poking fun at anyone who may find themselves there, because that's not a fun place to be. But what I want to say is this. Jesus can set you free from that. Because to be averse to change would be to be opposed to the gospel and what Jesus wants to do in your life. Okay? But come to Jesus with that. Often as a defense mechanism, change-averse people will resist change. Their instinct is resist. No, change is bad. I'm not even going to hear you out. Don't even talk about change. It's a means of self-preservation. And sometimes, in the worst examples of this, we can, all of us can, even become combative. Oh, may it never be. I'm so averse to change, I'm going to preserve myself that actually what I'm going to do is become combative in my argument towards you. That's not great and won't bless. So we've got the changeaholics, we've got the changeaverse, and then we've got what I like to call the pioneer settlers. And I'm hoping that all of you would more likely fall into this category for the most part. Pioneering settlers. These people like change, but it needs to be, you need to be convinced first, that the change is worth the investment. Yeah? This is me, by the way. I like, I'm, I'm a bit of a pioneer settler. I love new things, but you've got to convince me. It's worth the investment. These group of people will have questions. 
and it's, that it's good for them. And it's not because they're questioning why are we doing this, they're questioning why are we doing this so that I can understand. Not trying to undermine. This group of people are willing to adapt and change and be flexible. It might not always be comfortable for us, but you recognize that change is inevitable and is actually often beneficial. A pioneering settler wants to see a well-thought-out plan and vision for change, and when they catch the vision, they will give themselves to it completely. Do some of you fall into that category? Good. Hallelujah. What's really good about the pioneering settler is that they want to see new things um, started, but they also want to see them get established. This is good. This is how it should be. They want to know that it's worth the investment of their time, talents, and treasure. Say time, talents, and treasure. With a little bit more enthusiasm because you're falling asleep. Time, talents, and treasure. Okay, for the recording, everybody's awake. And in this context, in our context, in the church, the Whoop crew are still with us. A pioneering settler, most importantly, should want to know that this is God's plan, not just a good idea. Amen? We want to follow what God's doing and nothing else. We want to follow what Jesus says is the way. R.C. Sproul puts it like this, Christians are changed and are changing. Okay, so I've talked about us as a church and how change affects us and the different groups of people you might find within a church, and now I'm going to hone in and talk about us as individuals, because R.C. Sproul says that you are changed, i.e. you've become born again, you're a Christian, but you are also changing to become like Jesus. It's called sanctification, if you want to use the long Christian word for it, okay? Becoming more and more like Jesus, less like your old sinful self. And as a born-again Christian, there should not be a time in our lives where you are not changing. Amen? Yeah! I'll tell you what, it's popping off. There should not be a time in your life when you're not changing. But do you know what? Change is difficult, isn't it? Sometimes the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something in your life and you go, oh, that's the hard one. I find that the difficult one. And then sometimes the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something else and you find that one really, really easy. And if you track through your Christian walk, you'll find certain things where you go, I found that one an easy adjustment and change to make. But I found this one a constant struggle. But are you still changing? It's not something that is complete until the day that you are called home or Jesus comes again. You're always changing in this Christian life. We've got to be cooperating with what the Holy Spirit is doing in us and not resisting because of fear or anxiety. Or, and I think this is perhaps what the Holy Spirit wants to highlight today, we're not paying attention. Do you need me to unpack that? If you're not paying attention to your Christian walk with Jesus, if you're just going through the motions, you can often not be hearing really what the Spirit is saying. If you're enough of a chameleon in this world and you blend in enough, you don't really feel the need to change. If you're not in the words deep enough, if your roots aren't going down in this, well then what's going to challenge your spirit to say, I've got to change? 
And I can say this to myself because I can track periods through my life where I go, growth spurt, growth spurt, level, plateau, 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 plateau. Oh, it dipped. Going again, yeah, I've refocused. Go, yeah, you can plot that through your own Christian walk. All right, you're normal. But am I changing to become more like Jesus? If I was to evaluate the last year, have I changed to become more like Jesus? Am I still listening for what the Holy Spirit is saying to me? And Jesus here is showing the Pharisees that they're going to have to change. It's my big, large point making sense to you all, yeah? Jesus is sitting amongst them, feasting away, saying, you guys have got to change. So we step back into our story. We know the implied questions within the Pharisees and what they're asking Jesus. And Jesus goes on to explain using three points, and I will come through these fairly quickly. The first one that Jesus goes on to uh, use for them is he says this, nobody fasts in the presence of the bridegroom. He's essentially saying at a wedding, you don't fast, do you? You feast, that's what happens. And he's essentially saying you're in the presence of the, bride, uh, of, of the bridegroom. That's what Jesus is saying in that moment. I'm not sure they get it. And then Jesus goes on and says, here's another pictorial image for you. He says, nobody patches up a torn garment by using a new piece of fabric, patches it over the top. And essentially what he's saying is, is because as soon as you wash that garment, the new piece of fabric is going to shrink, and then the hole's still there, and you've still now got two bits of torn garment. No sooner do you wash this garment, or no sooner do you repair it, you wash it, and it's busted again. That doesn't work. You can't patch up the old is what he's saying. And I'm not sure they get it. And so he starts to talk about wine. There's probably wine on the table. And he says uh, this about the wineskins. Oh, if I can find it, as a point. He says that you don't pour new wine into old wineskins. Well, why not, Jesus? Why wouldn't you do that? Surely it'd be economical or whatever else. So if you know anything about wine is that new wine ferments a lot and lets off a lot of gases okay and what happens is, is when they place it in a new wine skin the new wine skin is able to stretch and expand and cope with what's going on that fermentation process but if you were to pour new wine that needs to do that onto an old wine skin that's already stretched what happens is it goes ah i can't cope and it just explodes and the wine goes everywhere all over the floor and that's the image that jesus is saying to these pharisees so he's used these three pictures to describe the same point he's basically saying you can't fit something new into what was unfit in the old and i'm still not sure that they completely get it because what jesus is essentially saying is i've come to make all things new and your religiosity your fast days your way of getting right with god is no longer fitting in this new moment He's not saying the old is rubbish. He's saying, I've come to fulfill the old and make all things new. I'm the one who was promised to you. I'm coming to make you right with God. So that actually all the religiosity goes and all the relationship starts, as if I can put it simply. That's what Jesus is there amongst them doing. And so he sat amongst sinners and tax collectors and religious people and saying these things. 
What Jesus is essentially saying is what was fit for the old season isn't fit for the new season. And sometimes that's the case in church life. Sometimes that's the case in our life. Because if you've been around in Christendom long enough, you'll have seen all manner of things about how you do ministry in church life, yeah? You've seen a lot of change down the years. And there were things that were fit for purpose in a season that don't work today. And I personally, I'll stand here and say it, and you can disagree with me, I personally think door knocking in this nation doesn't work anymore. Because everybody's home is his fortress, and we hate to be disturbed at the door. What are you selling? If someone comes to you combative, on a high street, in this culture, in this country, we don't like to be disturbed. Someone starts walking towards you with a clipboard, you... you <laughs> don't you? You're scurrying a shopper, don't need to go in here, but... You do, don't you? Doesn't work, but in the 80s, it was all the rage. So what was fit for the old season is no longer fit for the new season. So we have to adapt and we have to change. But what I want to say to you, friends, today is that change is inevitable. Change in church life will be here to stay. Change is here to stay. But also, Holy Spirit is going to ask you, and hear me when I say this, He's going to ask you to change as well. Every day for the rest of your life, until he calls you home or he comes again. Why? Because he wants us to have all of Jesus and nothing less will do. And that's the Holy Spirit's work within us. Cooperate with him. Jesus wants to give us everything. He came to give us everything. Life and life abundantly. What does that look like? That looks like more of Jesus in me and less of the world. Hallelujah. So how do I handle change in a way that honours what's gone before and does not hinder what God is wanting to do in the new? How am I going to be like this new wineskin that's willing to be stretched? How am I going to demonstrate a willingness to adapt to what God's doing and asking of me in my life so that I can experience what God's doing? Who wants to experience what God's doing in their life? Yeah? Yeah. So we've got to be intentional about that. God calls us all to change. He doesn't save us and say, now stay the same. He didn't leave Matthew in the tax office, did he? Notice that. Jesus said, leave that behind, come and follow me. And Jesus asks us, when we get saved, and hear me when I say this, when you get saved, when you become a born-again Christian, when you receive Jesus into your life, he says there are things that no longer fit your life and you need to leave behind. There are things that are of the old that do not come into the new. There are things that are incompatible now with who you are because you're in Christ. Jesus came to make all things new for you and I. And if you're not a Christian in this place, I want to say this, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring us into land here. There's a, there's a Christian word that you'll hear said many times and sung many times if you spend any time in church. The word is righteousness. And essentially, if you break down the word righteousness, it means to stand right with God. That's what righteousness is in a nutshell. And the question I'm going to ask you today is, do you stand in right relationship with God today? Because if you don't, you are missing out on so much. Jesus loves you. Jesus is calling you today and saying, come to me and you can have my righteousness. 
And in an instant, if you'd say today, if you were to put your hand up or your hand on your heart or to bow your head and pray a prayer, whatever you chose to do, if you said this in your heart and you meant it, if you believe that what I'm saying is true and you confess it with your mouth, even if it's a whisper, Jesus will save you. And here's what you need to say and here's what you need to do. I believe, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I want to exchange my sin for your righteousness. And I want to be born again today. I give you my life. That is a prayer I prayed on the 13th of December, 1996, while walking home from work one night. And I have never, ever regretted it since. Jesus came and took all my sin, all my brokenness, all the things that had ever gone on, and he dealt with it. And he gave me his righteousness. I've been standing right with Jesus since the 13th of December, 1996. And how we stand when it comes to our relationship with God matters. Because this life is just a vapor. As quick as it's here, it's gone. But eternity is a very, 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 very long time. And so the invitation today is this. If you're a Christian in this place and you've heard a sermon about change and you go, do you know what? I've got some things I need to face up to. We're going to take a moment now. You can bow your heads and you can do business with God. I don't need to know about it. Ask Holy Spirit to help you with that area you struggle to change in. And if you're here today and you've heard this sermon and the Holy Spirit's been doing something in your life and you want to give your life to Jesus... In fact, I'm going to ask everybody, bow your heads and close your eyes. If you want to give your life to Jesus today, why don't you just lift your head up and just, just give me eye contact and I'll, I'll just acknowledge it. There is a glorious life that awaits if you receive Jesus today. I appreciate it. It might take some great bravery to even look up. If you'd rather speak to me afterwards, that's absolutely fine as well. I'm going to pray for us. Father, I thank you that you didn't leave us to our own devices. And I thank you that you didn't leave us bound in sin. And you didn't just give us a religious way to maintain a relationship with you, but you gave us yourself, Jesus. You gave your life, you gave your everything. You died on a cross for my sin. Everything I've done against you, you took upon yourself. And as you hung there and you died, as you were buried in a tomb, and then you rose victoriously three days later, my sin 
was crucified with you and the death I deserved was dealt with in your death and as you rose again new life came so that I could stand right with you Father God and you said I give you my spirit so that you will be forever connected to me eternally and so God I give you praise for your great salvation today and I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would receive again and again today fresh revelation of just how wonderful you are fill us again with your spirit give us courage to change as you provoke us this week let us be cooperative and not combative and resistant we want to seek first the kingdom of God so come and bless us as we go in Jesus name I pray amen good well I hope you've learned a little something there from that parable yeah